you want to open up to the book of Leviticus, that is where we're going to be spending our time this morning. I know when you hear Leviticus, you might be tempted to kind of turn off. That's my temptation every time I hear the book of Leviticus. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Um, with that said, I think Leviticus offers a lot for us, um, even as Christians. There's um, not a book outside of Leviticus, um, as far as I can tell, that has more direct speech or commandment from the Lord himself um, than Leviticus. More speech granted to the Lord in the first person than any other book. Um, so to me, that communicates some worth in and of itself, mm -hmm. even when I'm tempted to kind of turn my brain off, uh, knowing the content Sometimes as Christian, as a Christian myself, um, I'm tempted to also turn my brain off from Leviticus or not pay attention just because I know it's Old Testament laws and details that don't really apply to me uh, in the literal anymore. But certainly, um, God has put a lot there that he draws from even in the New Testament to uh, help Christians understand what it is they're doing, how things function, and really who he is. So as we move through the book of Leviticus, and we kind of offer, I offer up an overview of the book of Leviticus, um, I intend to maybe highlight a few things as we go throughout it that I think um, we as Christians can particularly glean from, just so it's not purely an overview, and it's not just this thing and that thing and the detail of it, but that maybe we can point out a couple things along the way. All right, so the book of Leviticus, I already mentioned, that has more direct speech from God than any other book as far as I can tell in, in the Bible. And it's, it stands in contrast to maybe Genesis and Exodus in the fact that it's over a very short amount of time. Genesis has the longest timeline of any book in the Bible. You have a couple, um, you know, 1,000, 1,500 years represented in that time frame minimally. Um, and Exodus takes place over the course of I don't know, 70 years or something like that. Um, well, Leviticus takes place in about a month. And so it's a very rapid fire in that sense. It's, uh, and to think that God spoke this much in such a short amount of time is really um, amazing to me to think about God having said all of this in such a short amount of time. So there's a lot of direct involvement by the Lord in this period of Israel's history. Um, and then just as Exodus led the Israelites out of Egypt and in the end of Exodus we really have half the book spending time showing the Israelites not only the fundamental laws of what it was what was to be God's nation on earth but really time spent setting up the tabernacle where God was going to dwell with them really was his idea all along is what he was trying to restore is his ability to live with his people. And so Exodus emphasizes the setting up of the tabernacle. And really Leviticus to me, if I could sum it up in one way, is um, not the setting up of the tabernacle, but is functioning within the tabernacle. So now that God dwells in this place, how are the people to function around it? Um, because now that God's in their midst, they had some things that had to be done specific um, they had some things that had to be regarded in certain ways because God wasn't common. He's not 
commonplace. And so they had some specific things they had to do to keep him in the tabernacle. Um, and so that's really the bulk of Leviticus. Um, and to me, I saw this and I thought it was a helpful way to think about this. There's really three primary divisions in the book of Leviticus. So if, um, in your mind, <laughs> this is kind of how I am. I think about Leviticus and I think about it as a jumble of specific laws for maybe priests. That's just, in my mind, it wasn't any clean outline. It was just kind of a jumble of stuff like that. Um, but maybe this is helpful. The first uh, 15 chapters, the first 15 chapters are, you might say, ways or the way to approach God. And you're going to have offerings, you're going to have priests and what they're to wear and things like that. Chapter 16, kind of functioning as the middle portion of the book, is to, the way to be atoned before God. So that emphasizes, and uh, thanks James for the reading there, that's emphasizing the Day of Atonement once a year. So you have the way of approaching God, you have this chief day, this way to be atoned before God, and then after that, the last ten ver- chapters of the book is then the way to live before God. And you have various and sundry laws about what to eat, what not to eat, how to regard vows and curses and things like that. So that, to me, is kind of your, your application, your ways to live for God, to God. So those are kind of the three basic ways that I thought were helpful in remembering generally. If you can't even remember the chapters, if you can just remember those three things Leviticus is divided up by, that's helpful. Um, so if you want to start... Uh, in Leviticus chapter 1, uh, no better place to start when you're doing a book overview than chapter 1, so that's where we'll start. Um, we really have in the first three chapters three um, sacrifices that God speaks and commands. And what I wanted to point out in this is the first couple verses of chapter 1 really sets the tone for these sacrifices as a whole. Uh, Leviticus one one. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. All right. I want to stop there for a moment. One, we recognize a pattern in the book of Leviticus, and I think this is important, and I think all of us in this room being Christians recognize the importance of this. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him. This was a direct speech from God to Moses that Moses was then going to relay to other people. And so Moses has a responsibility here to not mince what God said, not to mess it up, not to change it, not to take away from it. He had to speak exactly what the Lord commanded. And as Christians, I think we understand that we value that. We value the times where we see the Lord speak and we don't try to change it or take away from it in any way. And that's what Moses was told to do. And it says that he was to speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. All right, so this introduces us to this next several chapters, which are offerings to the Lord. And he's going to talk about the different offerings. He's going to say, all right, when one of you wants to give to me, wants to offer something to me, here's the different ways in which you could do that. Here's the different things you can do, the different ways you can present it, but these are the things I'm going to accept. And that's what he presents in the next um, uh, seven verses, or seven chapters, sorry. 
But look at verse 2. I think this is an important detail. Where are these offerings coming from? He says, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. To me, that says that it's yours. Um, You have some value or some um, resources put into this thing that you're bringing to me. Um, Now, of course, we see provisions for the poor. They're able to go buy and do different things. But this was yours. And the idea here is, I think, when you're making an offering, you do something that is valuable to you. This is of your flock, and it's of your herd, um, not someone else's. And so to me, I think that just denotes it it was going to be more costly than just some random thing that they happened to go hunt and kill. It was something that they had raised themselves, something they had purpose to do. Um, And so I think that sets the tone for the offerings. These are things that would be offered to God, much like we often think about David saying he wasn't going to offer something to the Lord that wasn't costly to him. God instituted that from the beginning. It was yours that you had brought up and used resources to have, and you were giving it to God. And so that really sets the tone for the first, um, I feel, seven chapters of this book. In chapter one, you have the burnt offerings and all the things that entail that. In chapter two, you have the grain offerings and what goes along with that. Chapter three, you have the peace offerings and what goes along with that. Um, Chapter four, Uh, All the way through, about halfway through chapter 5, about verse 13, you have the sin offering. So you you have identified four different offerings there in those first five and a half chapters. Then 5.14 through 6.7, you have what is identified for us, or we might call the guilt offering. Um, You might have a heading, something along those lines. Um, So we we recognize five different offerings that the Lord sanctions or commands, or authorizes, however you want to phrase that, within these first six chapters. And then the rest of chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, all the way through the end of 7, are uh, regulations or um, specifications on the offerings. Okay, So the first five chapters we have just, here are the offerings. And then the last chapter and a half of the first seven chapters, we see, all right, here's some of the details of what's going on as it pertains specifically to the priests and their roles. Um, Now, as a Christian, as I step back and look at this and think about my life and what I know Jesus teaches in the New Testament, what I see Paul writing about, Peter writing about, James writing about, I can't help but maybe pay attention to the detail in this. Um, God wasn't vague in what he desired. He wasn't ambiguous. He didn't say, you know, just bring whatever you feel like is a good offering that is costly to you. He had very specific means in which he allowed them to present themselves before him in the tabernacle. And I know they did, the common man did that through the priest and things, but this was their presentation to God for their family or for themselves. And I just think about as a Christian, uh, what that means to me. How much more do I value Jesus when all the passages in the New Testament tell me that I'm able to come to God myself? And Jesus is my offering, and Jesus is also my mediator and my priest, and all these images. I can't help but think about how much more accessible God has made himself through his Son. Um, And so when I read Leviticus, I can't help but praise God for his provision. And, you know, we talked about in chapter 1, verse 2, 
how it was from your flock or your herd, God had really done that himself. He had raised up from his flock or his herd Jesus for us. It wasn't somebody he went and captured and said, you're going to be my sacrifice. It was something he had resource invested in and in fact was himself and he brought. And so these images and these things really resonate to me even looking back from the Christian point of view of just what God, even setting forth in the Old Testament, really perfects in Jesus today. All right, so this next section of how to approach God or ways to approach God in his tabernacle, I feel really involves the priests heavily. Chapters 8 through 10, I would summarize as consecration of the priests. Um, You know, how they were dedicated to service, what they were to wear, those kinds of things. Um, Chapter 8, Aaron and his sons are consecrated or ordinated to be the ones to be priests. It's his family. It's his line. They're going to be priests, and specifically Aaron is going to be high priest, and from his family, the line of high priest would continue. Um, And so chapter 8 really outlines that, and certainly there's things in this that I think are really clear and really easily translated when we look at the New Testament to see how this would apply uh, to us. I mean, we see images in this chapter of so many things. Um... If you want to begin uh, in verse 10 of chapter 8. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord had commanded them. And this, of course, is even after Moses has had Aaron and his sons washed and cleaned, and then they're able to have this anointing oil and put on new clothes. And so, I mean, our minds are already probably there. We can't help but think about how uh, God has provided for Christians in the same kind of way. And we have passages in First and Second Peter that talk about how we're priests, Uh, We have passages that tell us that before we were consecrated, we just had whatever clothes on. And now that God has cleaned us or washed us in Jesus, we get to put on new garments, we get to put on new robes, and now we're set apart for God's service. And so certainly we see that in Aaron and his sons, we see an image of that. God's pattern holds true in that way. He set apart these people after washing and reclothing specifically for his purpose. Um, And so as a Christian, I appreciate that, and I think that's cool that God has done that from the beginning. Um, As we work through chapter, uh, through this section, the next chapter is chapter 9, where it details kind of the work or the ministry of the priests um, and what they do and how they go before God and they offer these offerings, not only for themselves, but also for the people that brought their offering, you know, for the Israelites that bring their offering to the priests. Chapter 10 is, and perhaps of Leviticus, this might be the thing that stands out in our memory, are Aaron's sons who fail to abide by the rules and regulations God had set forth already. Uh, We have Nadab and Abihu, and most of us, when we hear those names, we think about fire. Like, instantly we think about death and fire. 
Those poor guys got eaten up. Um, it's really an interesting story, and I think uh, it, it really is weighty in the book of Leviticus, even outside of this chapter. We see chapter 16, where God talks about the Day of Atonement. The reason he mentions it is because people started asking about the consequences of what happened in Nadab and Abihu. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But this really is a backbone um, and a lot of, I think, explanation and a lot of detail God gives because he wants to avoid these kinds of situations. Um, all right, in chapter 10, we have Nadab and Abihu. There's certainly lessons to be learned in this. The beginning of chapter 10, um, can you imagine if you're Aaron, you've been set apart for the most intimate of service to the Lord. He's the high priest. His sons are priests. And to have two of his sons in service to the Lord killed by the Lord. Um, it's bad enough to have two sons killed. I can't imagine what that's like. But to have them killed by the Lord when they were trying to serve the Lord, I think adds a whole other layer uh, of emotion and probably frustration and confusion on Aaron's part. I don't know really how to fathom that, but let's look at chapter 10 a little bit more. Certainly we understand probably what happened to Nadab and Abihu. It says in verse 1 that they offered, and some translations differ on this a little bit, strange or unauthorized fire before the Lord. But the key there is which he had not commanded them. I don't know what this fire is all about. I don't know if it was you know wood fire versus flint fire or what. You know, something... <laughs> what it was if the fire was supposed to come from one place versus another place i don't know but god hadn't commanded it and i think that's the key there so fire came out in verse two from before the lord and consumed them and they died before the lord and moses and this is moses speaking moses said to aaron this is what the lord has said among those those who are near me i will be sanctified before all the people i will be glorified all right so that's that's moses's <laughs> message to Aaron. I'm sure they had more conversation than that, but that's what's recorded for us. Moses tells Aaron when his sons die, this is his explanation, God's going to be sanctified and he's going to be glorified before the people. And to me that illustrates or points out maybe the root issue with Nadab and Abihu in this instance. Were they trying to serve the Lord? Well, yeah, I don't think anyone would question that in some capacity they're trying to do what God asked them to do, but they weren't sanctifying what God had said. They weren't sanctifying the Lord himself like they needed to. If they really regarded what God said as holy, the way he defined holy, they wouldn't have done something that he hadn't commanded them to do. And we've all made that mistake. We all in our moments throw out God's word or in a way um, contaminate his word. We unsanctify it, I guess we can use that phrasing. Um, and we've all made mistakes like We've all chosen not to listen to something God commanded or ignored some portion of God's word for whatever reason. But God shows us in Nadab and Abihu that's not something he tolerates. And with Nadab and Abihu, he also points out there were other people noticing. And I think that's another key in this and that we learn from the book of Leviticus in general is not only is God holy and the things that he says are to be sanctified and revered, but before all the people, I will be glorified. When we do things the way God instructs them or tells us to do them, that's taking the glory off of me and putting it on God. 
if I say I'm doing this God's way, not my way, or I'm doing this because God said so, or because he said to avoid this or not do this, it glorifies God and other people see me giving attention paid to God. They see glory being given to God's word. Um, of course, that sanctifies it. And it shows the holiness is the Lord's. I'm paying attention to what he's saying. But I think, personally, I give glory to God that way, and other people recognize that God is worthy of my attention and my glory in that. And so those are the chief things I think Moses points out to Aaron. And look at Aaron's reaction. And Aaron held his peace. I don't think that means he was not upset or distraught that he lost his sons, but I think that tells me he understood. Like any good parent, I'm sure he mourned the loss of his children to some extent, but he understood what Moses was saying to him. He recognized, like, yes, that must have been true. Um, and, and so as a Christian looking at this lesson, I can't help but think, do I sanctify the Lord? Do I pay attention to the things he commands and the things he leaves out? And do I try to do my best to hear what he's saying? And do I glorify God by paying attention to the things he said to, to the people around me? It's um, too, you know, I guess, in a human sense, eternal lessons, always true lessons for us as people. Those are two key things that we as Christians need to understand. And just like the Israelites had to learn, we need to learn from Nadab and Abihu as well. Um, All right, so moving on from chapter 10, the last five chapters of this first section on ways to approach God really have to do with clean and unclean. Chapter 11 deals with clean and unclean food. Chapter 12 deals with uh, clean and unclean childbirth and how all that works and how long you're clean, how long you're unclean, those kinds of things. Uh, chapters thir- chapter 13, depending on your translation, deals with skin disease like leprosy. And then some translations regarding the household things call it also leprosy. Some translate that as like mildew in the walls and things like that. But clean and unclean as far as your body and your stuff, I guess is how I break that down. And then chapter... 15 deals with various bodily discharges and things like that and how they make you clean and unclean. So there's this conversation through the last five chapters and really a greater idea of some things are holy and some things are not. Some Some things God can be around and some things God will not be around. And I think that really instills in the Israelite this idea of God is particular with the kinds of things and people he associates with. And to me as a Christian, I recognize that completely. God teaches us the same thing about being clean and unclean in a spiritual way. Do we have sin in our life or do we not? God will associate with those who are free from sin in Jesus and those who are not free from sin. He will disassociate or distance himself from. And so I see that in this chapter. So that, that, that really is the first section of Leviticus. Chapters 1 through 15 are ways to approach God. And as a Christian, that's something I can glean from in Leviticus. I can see these truths as I see them reflected in the Old Testament about truths we see in Jesus Christ. Uh, Chapter 16, if you want to turn there with me, um, as I mentioned before, serves as sort of the, the, the tilting point or the focal point of Leviticus. To me, you have ways to approach God and you have ways to live for God or live to God 
after this. But to me, there's this whole chapter spent with special attention paid to this Day of Atonement. And it's even regarded as like a Sabbath of Sabbaths. It's the most holy of Sabbaths. It's the one offering once a year where the high priest goes into the most holy place. I mean, it's special on a bunch of levels. So I can't help but think that this Day of Atonement was the focal point, perhaps even, of Leviticus. It kind of falls in the middle. Um, and Kirby mentioned this in passing, and I kind of thought about it and looked into it a little bit more, and it seems um, that Hebrew writing often emphasized the thing in the middle. Um, you know, the idea of a chiasm sort of that way, like an ABC, CBA structure. The thing in the middle is being emphasized. And so you think about this kind of falling in the middle of the book of Leviticus, maybe that's being emphasized. If you think about the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Leviticus is in the middle, and the Day of Atonement's in the middle of that. So, I mean, if you expand it out, it's falling right in the middle here. And so I can't help but think that this is a really important thing, even the language used in chapter 16 indicates that it was special. And so I kind of made this its own section. It's way to be atoned before God. It seems to me to be the climax. And look at verse 1 of chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, this is a response. It's pretty clear. This is a direct response to Nadab and Abihu being killed by God. Now, it was their own decisions and their other issues that led them to their death, but God killed them. There's no way to get around that. People were saying, hey, God's killing his priests. You know, we mess up one time and we're hosed. <laughs> you know, we, we botch this and we're done. And so you can't help but think there's probably questions or concerns circulating saying, if we mess up once, we're going to die. We have no escape from our errors. Um, and so to me, this is God saying, this is how I'm prepared to handle your mistakes. This is how I'm prepared to still dwell with you, within you and even have you come to dwell with me in my holy place um, on some level with the high priest. And so I feel like this is God's answer to that. This is uh, God's overarching sanctification of the people. I mean, we have these offerings that the people bring before God and he can accept, but this is God's cleansing of Israel. It cleanses the priests. It cleanses the people. In fact, it even, on some level, cleanses the altar and the holy place. I mean, just cleansing abounds from this this event. So chapter 16, there's certainly a lot of details in this. Um, This is where Aaron is to bring a bull for himself before he can even approach God. He's got to be forgiven of his sins. He brings a burnt offering of a bull. But then this is where we see the two, like, goats, the two rams, and they cast lots, and the one that's spared is sent out into the wilderness after they kind of lay their hands on it. A lot of interesting ideas that go with that. I'm not sure exactly what was intended, but certainly it's this idea of one is essentially kind of given grace in a sense to leave, not to be spared, but also in a sense it's carrying with it some sort of sins away. I don't really understand all of that, but it's an intriguing idea. And then God slaughters, the priest slaughter the other ram. And then, of course, offerings are made for the people and all these things. And verse 29, as James read for us earlier, we recognize that this happens once a year. 
It's the holiest of all the Sabbaths throughout the year, and it happens on the seventh month and the tenth day of the year. Um, and this language, atonement, it's really this idea of a cost. There's an atoning. There's a price being paid. Um, you know, an offering is kind of like a gift, right? In chapters 1 through 7, we saw offerings. Gifts from the people to God. I want to offer this to you. I want to offer this to you. Chapter 16 seems to carry another connotation of a price being paid. There's a price being paid in chapter 16. There's atonement. There's a cost. And so certainly as a Christian, we look at this and we can't help but think about who paid our price, who carried our cost. And Jesus, right? Jesus is the crux or the focal point of the Bible, similar to maybe how the Day of Atonement in the Torah was the focal point of the, the, uh, the Torah, in a sense. Jesus is a focal point of the whole Bible, how he is, in a sense, this cleansing for everything and everybody. He is this special one-time kind of deal. Um, and really, he is the perfection of atonement Um, he paid the cost completely and he sanctifies the priests and he sanctifies the people and he sanctifies the holy place and he makes all these things good and so we look at i can't help but look at the day of atonement and think about jesus in that verse 34 chapter 16 and this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of israel once in the year because of all their sins directly tied to their sins. This is the cost being paid. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. All right. So, moving forward, this last section will move a little more quickly here. The ways to live before God. So we see ways to approach God. We see the way to be atoned before God. And really is the answer of when you mess up approaching me, here's the atonement. Um... And then ways to live before God or to God in this last section. All these chapters have to deal with how to live holy lives before God. Very practical things for them. Uh, Like chapter 17, for instance, is primarily about the sanctity of blood. How blood is regarded as a life source and it's holy and you don't mess around with it. You're regarded as special and things like that. Like chapter 18 is talking about Uh, unlawful sexual relationships to avoid those and which ones are right, which ones are wrong and how to treat that. Um, Various laws for living in chapter 19 is what I put down for that. But I mean, you get passages like loving your neighbor as yourself. We see that repeated in the New Testament um, as being a key or a cornerstone of God's commandments for humanity. You know, don't rob your neighbor, don't oppress him, things like that. You know, sundry laws for living. Chapter 20 is punishments for sin. We see various ways to carry out, according to God's word, punishment for different things um, when someone breaks the law. Chapters 21 and 22, I put as priestly regulations and sacrificial regulations in that order. Um, And just how priests go about what they're doing and how they offer sacrifices. Chapter 23 is the annual feasts that were offered, such as the Sabbath, Um, such as the Passover, those kinds of things. Chapter 24 is oil and bread regulations. Um, Also, how to 
deal with blasphemy, what's blasphemy, those kinds of questions that are answered. Chapter 25 is the Sabbath and Jubilee. Again, special feast day, special um, religious holidays for the Israelites. Chapter 26 is blessings and cursings. And then chapter 27 is laws concerning vows. The simple thing that I want us to get out of this and that I think strikes me as I read the end of Leviticus um, is that God is concerned about how we live our lives. You know, there's a, there's a temptation, and I think a lot of, we're talking about this in Bible class, people who might deem themselves spiritual or even religious, you know, maybe even Christians, have this idea of we need to approach God and we need to be forgiven of our sins, but beyond that, there's no right way or wrong way to kind of handle your business in life. You know, like if I have God and He's forgiven me, then that's it. That's the bottom line. Even way back in the Old Testament, they could be atoned for and they still had ways they needed to live. They could be atoned for and approach God in all the right ways, but if they didn't regard the blood as holy, or if they didn't pay attention to who they could sleep with and who they couldn't, or they didn't pay attention to their neighbor's needs, or if they didn't pay attention to how to regard um, sacrifices or how to, uh, or what feasts to keep and things like that, then they had sin in their life. They had points of contention with God. God said, regard my word as holy and sanctify it and give me glory among all the people. And so when God says, hey, don't eat blood, hey, don't rob your neighbor. If I don't regard that as holy, I'm not giving glory to God, and God has a contention or a complaint against me. And so to me that says, God, even from the beginning, cares about the way we carry ourselves, cares about how we live. And we're not going to turn to any passages in the New Testament in any of this lesson. Because we know, we are, we're all thinking of one or two passages, even if we don't know where they are. You're thinking of some phrase or some verse in your head where God says, you know, I'm condensing this, you know, I care about the way you live. You need to do this. Live holy lives. Walk in light, not in darkness. You know, speak the truth in love. You know, do not walk in darkness. Do not lie. Do not cheat your brethren. Love your neighbor as yourself. God still cares about the way we carry ourselves. Even after, as we mentioned earlier, Jesus has brought his perfect or complete atoning power. How much better is that atonement? And God still cares about the way we carry ourselves, the way we live, and the way we pay attention to what he's commanded. And so, a lot, a lot of times, even with this perspective, I still get bogged down in Leviticus, and I struggle to get through it. Um... But just having that kind of perspective on Leviticus, seeing the principles, I guess, instead of maybe always getting bogged down in the details like I tend to do, really helps me and really encourages me, even in my Christianity, to do a better job of regarding God's word as holy and appreciating Jesus' sacrifice and then knowing I need to pay attention to how I'm living my life. Um, so that that is my overview of... Leviticus.